we drive. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Bree. Good evening, church. If I haven't met you, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. I've loved uh, preaching through Genesis. We looked at Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, and tonight we're looking at Jacob. Let me give you the quote from my favorite pastor and theologian Spurgeon. He says this, If Christ be anything, he must be everything. If Jesus Christ be anything in your life, he must be everything in your life. He doesn't want part of you, he wants all of you. Rest not to love and faith in Jesus be the master passions of your soul. And you read that and you think, oh, well, that, that's a bit full on, Paul. That's a bit full on faith for me. People sometimes say to me, Paul, I, I don't mind that you're a Christian, but please not one of those full on Christians. As if my relationship with Jesus can be anything but full on. As if Jesus shouldn't shape every single part of me. So if you've met Jesus Christ, he doesn't want a bit of you. He wants the whole of you. He wants your life to be shaped by his will and his ways and his decisions and his desires. It's a bit like a a wheel and a hub. In a wheel, you've got the hub at the center and you've got all these spokes coming out. And I keep meeting Christians who they do know Jesus, they do love Jesus, but Jesus is kind of like just one spoke in their wheel. And if they're honest, that the, the, themselves are still at the hub of their life. Their life evolves around them, and they touch around them, their choices, their plans, their desires, their decisions. It's a bit like Jesus is kind of the, the side salad or the, the portion of fries that you add to the main course. Uh, but if you believe in Jesus, he, he refuses to be the side salad. He wants to be the hub of your life. He wants to shape everything about you, your choices, your relationships, your work, your passions, your purposes. It should be all about Jesus. If Jesus is anything, he must be everything to you. Don't you want to be like that, where you you want to talk like Jesus and think like Jesus? You want to invite Jesus to reveal sin in your life. You want to invite Jesus to reveal the temptations. You want to invite Jesus to show all the ways that you're conforming to the patterns of the world. You want to just surrender everything to Jesus. Now, Now, to be honest, Jesus was not the hub of my life for the first 10 years I was a Christian. The first 10 years I was a Christian, I, I did believe in Jesus. I, I could quote Bible verses, but I wasn't living them. Well, I was at Bible college by now, but Jesus was kind of a, a spoke of my life, not the hub of my life. And then God broke me, and God humbled me, and God took me to this place of pain where I had nothing but Jesus, and I had to learn to say, God, your grace is sufficient for me. And that was the moment in my life where I actually truly encountered Jesus. And those Bible verses I could quote, I started to have to believe and live. And I didn't just have a shallow relationship with Jesus. I had this deep, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And God has broken me many times since, and it's never pleasant, but each time I have a deeper, richer relationship with Jesus. And I think you know the difference between a, a spoke Jesus and a hub Jesus. You, you know the difference. That those people, when you meet them, 
They just can't stop talking about Jesus. Jesus oozes out of them. It's all about Jesus. And you might say, oh, that's a bit full on. No, it's not full on. That's the kind of life that God wants you to live, and it's so beautiful. So, so tonight we're looking at Jacob. Remember, Jacob's a nasty piece of work. I said before, Jacob is cold, calculating, callous, self-serving, self-seeking, heartless, horrible, ratbag. But God loves him. He's this walking example of grace. And tonight we're going to look at these two encounters where he encounters God, but they are quite different. The first encounter I've called shallow faith. He meets God, but it's a, a shallow, superficial, surface-level faith. He, he does have faith. He does meet God. It is saving faith, but it's not transforming faith. He knows the promises of God, but it doesn't live them. So flip back to Genesis 28, verse 10. This stairway to heaven. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Remember, he's, he's fleeing his brother Esau. He's deceived his brother of his birthright and his blessing. He's fleeing for his life. And often when you're trying to flee, God finds you. Verse 11, when he reached a certain place, he, he later names that place Bethel, which means house of God. And you read that word Bethel, you think, oh, that sounds beautiful. It wasn't a beautiful place. It was a barren place. The last place you'd expect God to hang out. Anyway, he stops for the night because he's tired. It's the sun has set, and he, he grabs a stone and makes a, a makeshift pillow, perhaps for comfort, perhaps for protection. And, and, and you've got this picture of Jacob, and he's all alone, in the pitch darkness, I imagine looking up at the sky, and he's supposed to say, when I consider the works of your hand, God, what are we that you're mindful of us, God? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even bother to reach out to God. It's God who reaches out to him. And I hope you know that's true, that you don't reach out to God, but God reaches out to you. And just as Jacob starts to close his eyes for sleep, God opens his eyes to reveal who God is. Verse 12, Jacob had a dream. God speaks to Jacob in a dream because God can do that, you know. I'm not saying that every dream is God speaking to us, but God can speak in dreams. He often speaks in dreams. Please don't discard dreams. I don't know why God chose to speak to Jacob in a dream. I don't know why. Perhaps God had tried many different ways to speak to Jacob, but he couldn't get through any other way but through a dream. I want to say, please don't think that people who have dreams are super spiritual. Often they're the most stubborn people, and God can't speak to them in any other way. I think that's Jacob. He's stubborn. He's self-centered. He's self-serving. It's an amazing dream. Way before Led Zeppelin, in this dream, you've got a stairway to heaven. Verse 12, a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Let me ask you, what, what is the purpose of stairs? Stairs enable connection. Stairs enable you to have access to places that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. And that's the purpose here. This, this stairway gives you access to heaven and there are angels of God going up and down. Again, don't be scared of angels. 
Don't be skeptical of angels. Angels are mentioned in 34 books of the Bible, 103 times in the Old Testament, 165 in the New Testament. They're just God's messengers because God is interested in our lives. He, he is interested in, the, in, these, in the, the, the heavenly beings grabbing our attention. Not just the angels. God himself is there in verse 13. There above the stairway stood the Lord, stood Yahweh, the, the covenant-speaking, keeping God. And he's about to speak to Jacob. Now, what do you think God's going to say to Jacob? What would you say to someone who has schemed, lied, manipulated, stolen, been cold, callous, and conniving? I think my first, word would, first words would be, how dare you, you rotten scoundrel? You made your bed, lie in it. There are consequences, you know, Jacob. That's the way that we speak as human beings, but it's not how God speaks. When God speaks, he speaks words of grace and kindness and promise. Look at verse 13. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give to you, Jacob, you ratbag, I'll give to you this land. Verse 14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You'll have many descendants, Jacob. And all people on earth will be blessed through you, you scumbag, Jacob. It's the same promise he made to Abraham and Isaac of a land, of a nation, and a blessing. Now, God, in his grace, speaks those words to a selfish, scheming sinner. And it blows your mind, but that's what grace does, isn't it? God promises blessing to somebody who's been disobedient and deceptive. No conditions, no obligations, just pure, gracious promises. And it doesn't stop there. The next promise that God makes are the key to Jacob's life. He, he should have been transformed by them. These are the tangible promises that he should have lived by. But he didn't. Verse 15. God promises this. I am with you, Jacob. I'll watch over you, Jacob, wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will never leave you, Jacob, until I've done what I have promised you. They're, they're extraordinary promises of God. God is promising this wretched ratbag his presence with him. He's saying, Jacob, you're never going to be alone. You might be a fugitive. You might be on the run. But I'm with you. I will not abandon you. I'll walk alongside you. I'll be like your shade at your right hand. C.S. Lewis says this, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with God. He walks everywhere incognito. The promise of his presence, of his protection, I will watch over you, he says. Not like the, the, the scary security cameras that make you feel guilty all the time. This is God's hand of protection and care. The angels providing and guarding and dragging him from danger. And again, I do believe that God's angels watch over us in ways that you just don't imagine. You know, when he protected you from that car crash, when that person grabbed you and you're about to walk onto the road, or that person that you met who, who spoke a word and you've never met them before, and they spoke a word into your life that changed the course of your life, God can use that. It's God's presence, his protection, his, his plans, his place. That was the encounter that, that Jacob had with God. And I wonder whether you've had an encounter with God like that. 
You don't need to have had a dream, although God can speak through dreams. You don't need to go to Bethel, although you could if you wanted to. It's not a particularly nice place. But I hope you've encountered the person of Jesus Christ. You see, in John chapter 1, it's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I named my second son after him, Nathaniel. Uh, Philip meets Jesus. And Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel says, Nazareth? That backwater place, that barren place? Can anything good come from there? He says, come and see. And then Jesus sees Nathaniel, and Jesus reaches out to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, I saw you when you're under the fig tree. And then Jesus says these amazing words, quoting from Genesis 28. He says, Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than that. You'll see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not a staircase, but on Jesus, because Jesus is now the staircase. Jesus is the way to heaven. Jesus is the way that you encounter God. Not a place, but a person. Friends, in Jesus, you, you, you encounter God. And Jesus often finds us in the most barren messed up places. But once you've encountered Jesus, those promises he made to Jacob are promises he makes to you of his presence. Because Jesus promises you he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. Jesus promises he'll be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus promises you that his spirit will indwell you and you're never, ever, ever alone. That promise of protection that he, he sees you, he knows you, he guards you, he guides you, he cares for you. Those are the promises when you encountered Jesus. Now, Jacob encountered God, but it wasn't life-changing. Did he meet God? Of course he did. Would Jacob have gone to heaven if he died right then? Of course he would. But it was surface faith. He became more spiritual, and I'm sure that Jacob would have started going to church and reading his Bible but he still conformed to his old nature. And way, way, way too many Christians are like that. We're satisfied with this superficial, shallow encounter with Jesus. What am I on about? Look at verse 20. 28 verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. That's always a bad thing to do. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and if God will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and if God will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And then this stone that I've set up as a pillar to be God's house. And then I'll give you a tenth. <laughs> See what he's saying? God, if you show up for me. God, if you do this for me, if you prove yourself to be true, God, then I'll worship you. It's like he's putting God to the test. Like he's bargaining with God. He's saying, okay, God, you, you've made me these promises. Well, keep them, and then I'll worship you. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Is that terrible? No, it sounds like most of us. God, if you give me what I really, really want, then I'll worship you. God, if you show up in my life and if you bless me in this way, then I'll worship you. God, I've given you my money, so, so come on, God, now give me what I want. You ever done that? Bargaining with God? 
adding Jesus to your already successful life, putting conditions on how you will worship God, depending on whether you feel God has shown up for you or not. That is Jacob. He's spiritual, but he's self-reliant. He's self-centered. He's saved, but he's not transformed. How do I know that? You've got chapters 29, 30, 31, and 32. I have no time to, to preach them, but here's the potted summary. In chapter 29, Jacob takes two wives and two concubines and sleeps with whoever he feels like sleeping with. A transformed man would not do that. In chapter 30, he is deceptive. He lies. He tricks again Uncle Laban with these speckled and spotted lambs. He's, he's just selfish. He wants his own prosperity. In chapter 31, he takes his two wives and all his possessions and he flees at night. He doesn't tell Uncle Laban he's leaving. And then he deceives Laban again. And then he mocks Laban. And when Laban has the audacity to confront him, uh, Jacob gets all self-righteous and says, no, you've wronged me. I I've been the goody all along. And he's so blind to his failures and his deception. And come chapter 32, and he's about to meet with Esau, the the brother that he stolen the blessing from 20 years ago, and he tries to flatter Esau by calling him my Lord and calling himself your servant. And he tries to manipulate Esau and buy him off and pacify him by giving him this, 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 this outrageous gift of all this flock and all these animals and all these cows and all these sheep, thinking I can buy his affection. Oh, but you say in chapter 32... Jacob prays. That sounds pretty good. But look at the prayer. Chapter 32, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. This is the first time we hear Jacob pray. Why did he bother praying? Because now he's afraid. Because now he's in danger. Oh God, you've been so kind to me. You've blessed me in so many ways. I didn't deserve this. You've given me wives and kids and you've watched over me. I'm not worthy of that, God. But now I'm in trouble, so please help me. You know those type of Christians? They never, ever bother to talk to God until they're desperate, until they're in need. That's what's happening in chapter 20, 32. Jacob's met God. He knows the promises of God. He can quote the Bible verses about God's presence, God's protection, and God's plans, but he hasn't had a deep encounter with God yet. As a pastor, you can spot those people who've got surface faith, often by their prayer life, actually. But when they pray, it's all theological, and it's all God, God, God. It's not personal. It's not intimate. Or by the way that they're conforming to this world, not for evangelism, but because they just fit in with the world so well. Jacob needed an intimate, deep encounter with God, and he gets it in chapter 32. I've called this second encounter surrendered faith. 
surrender faith when he wrestles with God. One of my favorite lines in the whole Bible comes from Job 42. End of Job, after all the suffering, Job says this famous verse. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Love that verse. My, my ears had heard of you. God, I, I knew you. I knew all about you, and I had a relationship with you, and my ears had heard all these truths about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now I've truly encountered you. Now you've really broken me, God, and you've humbled me so I can see you face to face. And God had to break Jacob, and maybe God needs to break you. Growing up in our household, we had things called the nutcrackers. Remember those devices called a nutcracker? You ever seen one of those things? Probably haven't. You're probably too young for those things. Like this nutcracker, you, you get this nut and you crack it. Literally, you crack it. And the things that we used to love is, is trying to guess which were the hard nuts to crack and which were the easy nuts to crack. But you can't tell. Some nuts that look hard are, are really easy. Some that look easy are really quite hard. And I think Jacob was a really, 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 really hard nut to crack. Coming to chapter 32. Verse 22, Jacob sends his two wives, two female servants across ahead of him, and he's all alone. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone. That's often how God works when you're by yourself, when no one else is around, when no one except God is there. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. The first wrestling match in history, Jacob with this, this strange man. Who is this man? Spurgeon says this. I suppose our Lord Jesus Christ did here, as on many other occasions, assume a human form. Who is this man? It is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a theophany. It's God himself. This is not Jacob wrestling with God in prayer. This is not Jacob seeing a man think, I'm going to pick a fight with him. This is God coming down to fight Jacob, to wrestle with Jacob. This is God bringing Jacob to a place of surrender. This is God cracking the nut. This is God breaking Jacob until he's, he's, he's got rid of his self-reliance, his self-sufficiency, his scheming and his plotting. And he's saying, stop fighting Jacob. And that's the encounter that we all need. Verse 25, but when the man, when God, the pre-incarnate Christ, saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And that's a confusing verse. What it's saying here, of course God could overpower Jacob. Of course he could. What he's saying here is that God saw how stubborn Jacob was. God saw that Jacob would not give in easily. He saw how entrenched Jacob was to his scheming and his deceiving and his old way of life. He needed to break him and he loved him enough to do that. And so he touched the socket. Not a tender touch, but a tough touch. The hip socket. Why the hip? Because if your hip is broken, you can't run anymore. And I think he's saying, Jacob, please stop running. You spent your whole life thinking you're in control, running away from family, running away from friends, running away from me. Now it's time to stop, Jacob. Stop it. Come on. Rely on me. Depend on me. Verse 26, then, then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. I, I, this is about to finish now, Jacob. 
the sun's coming up. Uh, and Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Uh, Hosea chapter 12 unpacks that for us. Jacob is weeping for this blessing. He's desperate for this blessing. He just wants God to bless him. And that's the change. That Jacob has been reduced to the point where he is so dependent and so weak, he's got nothing but God. He can't fight anymore. And I love that. He had to get to the point where he was utterly helpless. Before Jacob could be delivered from Esau, he had to be delivered from himself. Jacob needed to learn that his greatest enemies were, were not his angry brother Esau or his angry uncle Laban. His greatest enemy was who? Himself. His self-reliance, his self-seeking, his self-dependence. And God loved him enough to break him. And maybe that's you here tonight. Maybe you've been fighting and fighting and running at God and limiting what God could do and thinking you are ultimately in control of everything. And maybe God needs to break you. How do I know he's changed? Well, he gave Jacob a new name. Verse 27. God, the man, asks Jacob, Jacob, what is your name? He's really asking, who are you, Jacob? Jacob, he answered. Remember that word Jacob means deceiver, cheater, liar, heel grabber. That's, that's who Jacob is admitting to who he is. God would not allow Jacob to cover up who he was anymore. He had to get to that point where he's willing to admit all his failures and his faults. I am the liar. I am the deceiver. That's who I am, he's saying. And then the man says, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob. You're no longer the man that you once were. Your name now is Israel. It could mean he struggles with God. I think it means God rules. God rules your life now, Jacob, not you. Jesus is your Savior and your Lord now. And verse 30, Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face. I've had a face-to-face encounter with the Holy God, and yet my life was spared. And do you know the first place he sees the face of God? The first place that Jacob sees the face of God is in the next person that he meets, and the next person that he meets is called Esau. He's about to come face-to-face with the brother he's lied, cheated, and deceived and hasn't seen for 20 years. What does, what does Jacob deserve from Esau? Punishment? Hatred? Payback? And Esau has every right to say, you think you could waltz into my life after 20 years and buy me off with some wretched cows and sheep. You think that you can waltz back into my life, I'm just going to forgive you like that? That's what you expect, but what do you get? 33 verse 4. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And Esau is like the father in the prodigal son story who threw his arms around him, kissed him and wept. It's full forgiveness. It's free forgiveness. He's like the face of God, undeserved love and undeserved kindness and undeserved acceptance. That is the grace of God. 
Remember the, the story of the man who was about to be released from jail after spending his time in prison? But he doesn't know whether his parents have forgiven him and will accept him back. He's brought so much shame to this family. He's, so, he, so he writes to his mum and dad, said, please don't come to the jail. Uh, I, I don't know whether you love me. I don't know whether you've forgiven me. But what we do is this. I'm going to be released on this Thursday. And, and I'll catch a bus home. I'll catch a bus back to the village. And if you love me, and if you forgive me, and if you accept me, just, just tie a yellow ribbon on that old oak tree in the village. And so when I drive into the village, if I see the ribbon there, I know that you have forgiven me, and I'll get off the bus and I'll come home. But if not, that's okay, I understand. And a Thursday comes, and he, he's released from jail. He gets onto the bus, and I, I don't know how he's feeling, but he's, he's driving to this village, and as the, village, as the bus turns a corner into the village, th- th- this man just puts his head in his hands. He can't, he can't bear to look at the old oak tree. And he looks up at the old oak tree and he starts to sob and sob and sob because there's no yellow ribbon on the old oak tree. There's no yellow ribbon because the old oak tree is covered in yellow dusters and yellow blankets and everything yellow you can think of. Because mum and dad are saying, of course we forgive you and of course we accept you and of course you welcome you home. We love you. And that's what Jesus is, is saying to you tonight. That's what God says to Jacob. Of course I forgive you. Of course I love you. You've seen the face of God. And the face of God is a face of forgiveness and acceptance and reconciliation and love. And please never doubt that. But if you've encountered the forgiveness of Jesus, if you've encountered the love of Jesus, if you've seen Jesus face to face and you've experienced that depth of his intimacy and his love, it can't help but change you. There's no such thing as a shallow faith. If Christ is anything, he must be everything to you. What I love about this Jacob story is that he's got this ongoing limp. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. That constant reminder that he is loved by God and forgiven by God and accepted by God and God has promised his presence and his provision and his protection and his incredible place. I wonder what it was like just to spend your entire life with a limp. As I said before, God has broken me on many occasions. In the year 2000, he stripped me of my pride. I felt like I've got a limp on my right hip because of that never really goes away, and I'm thankful for that, because pride is ugly. In 2005, just after we started Church by the Bridge, he broke me again and stripped me of my self-sufficiency, and that was painful. I felt like I got a limp on my left hip this time. In 2012, was a year, a horrible year of accusations and lies and spiritual attacks, and I felt like God broke my left wrist. And in 2022, last year, as you know, was a terrible year for me. I felt God was stripping away of all human support. Say, do you really believe that I'm enough, Paul? And God sort of broke my right wrist this time. And they've never healed. And I'm thankful they haven't healed. Because it's a constant reminder to me that God really is enough. And pride is horrible. And Christ is sufficient. Get rid of your self-sufficiency. I don't know how he's broken you, but... 
but that constant reminder of the ways that he's broken you, like the thorn in your flesh that reminds you that you are weak, but his grace is sufficient for you. So I really hope you've encountered Jesus in this life-transforming way. So when people say to me now, Paul, you're so full on for Jesus. I now say, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, because I am. Is there any other way but to be full on for Jesus? Now, what does Spurgeon say? Let's get that quote back up again. If Christ is anything, he must be everything. If Christ be anything to you, he must be everything. And that's my prayer for 7 p.m. church tonight. Let me pray. Father, your word tells us that you discipline those that you love. And so we want to thank you tonight, Father, for the way that you often break us. And you take us to places we wouldn't choose to go so that you would reveal yourself to us more. And we have a deeper, richer relationship with you. And it's dangerous, Lord, but I do do invite you to keep on bringing us to a place where we encounter you in that deep, intimate way. Father, forgive us for the times when Christ has not been everything. Forgive us for the times when Christ has been just a spoke in our wheel or just the side salad or the side of fries. Help us, Lord, please, to be full on for Jesus. We ask that for Jesus' sake.